Hi, I'm Sukrat Singh from Zik Archive and welcome to the 26th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to their areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Mani Mugda Sharma, who is primarily a journalist, but also a historian and is the author of the book, Allahu Akbar, Understanding the Great Mughal in Today's India. We talk about the current state of India and the historical context of Akbar with particular reference to the religious tolerance and right-wing politics. I'm really glad I've come across his work and I think it's a very well-timed piece which takes a closer look at India as a modern nation-state and offers a critique of such nationalism in that respect against the backdrop of a Mughal history to challenge the ever-increasing imagination of an exclusive Hindu India. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Sikh Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Sikh Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years, with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi Learning Workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk But now, back to the podcast to learn more about Akbar and modern India with Mani Mugda Sharma. Who is Mani Mugda Sharma? That's a very difficult question to answer. I'm so many things. <laughs> I'm a journalist primarily. Um, I work with the Times of India. And uh, I am a student of history. So that's where my book comes into the picture. I'm from Delhi. And uh, I am uh, a conscious commentator on socio-political affairs. So uh, there's not one identity that I have. I actually uh, uh, have different different identities. Well, all those identities combine together to give me one identity. So uh, I studied history in a university. I didn't know that I'm going to study journalism or, or be in journalism. I never studied journalism that way. But uh, initially I thought in my college university years that I will uh, go for the civil services. But uh, when I actually came to Delhi and started preparing for it, I realized that this was not my cup of tea. So then I thought that maybe I'll uh, look for a job and then uh, try for the civil services again at some time. But once I started working, and it, it came naturally to me. I never really anticipated I'm going to get a job. I randomly applied to a magazine, which was just starting off. And I got an interview call. I got the job. And that's how my first job happened. And uh, then after working there for a year, I decided to brand. It was a magazine, so I did, wanted to work in a newspaper because that's the most obvious thing uh, to do for young journalists. So either you get into a mainstream television or you get into a mainstream newspaper, right? Uh, 
So, um, television used to fascinate me, but then we started having these shrill conversations on TV just around the same time, you know. So, a lot of these Hindi channels had had, had sensational reporting. <laughs> they would report ghosts in offices and all kinds of things, you know, tantra, mantras, sorcery and, and occultism and all of that. And uh, television debates, though, uh, they are far worse now. But even back then, they were not so nice. I mean, you just leave out a handful of channels, uh, say NDTV and, 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 and Mirror Now. Uh, but Mirror Now did not exist back then. But NDTV was like the lone flag bearer of decent television journalism back then. So um, apart from NDTV, every other channel used to indulge in some sort of sensational reporting, even back then. Uh, it's just that because the political environment was not suitable enough, perhaps, that's why certain things were not still said openly uh, from television studios. Um, but then since I was into print, I'd started off as a print journalist. So I decided to stick around in print and I applied for a job at the Indian Express. I got it. So I worked there for three years. Then uh, then I decided to branch out. So you, there are several steps, right? So in the Times of India and Hindustan Times in India are the biggest newspapers. Times Group being the biggest. So I applied to the Times of India and the Hindustan Times. I got an offer from Times of India and I decided to join it. And this is my 11th year now. So I've been around uh, with the Times of India ever since. So that's me. I'm a journalist. Uh, to sum it up, a journalist interested in history, a student of history, a keen student of life, I would say. You mentioned you were a conscious writer in India. What does that mean in today's India? What do you write against the backdrop of in that respect? So I'm both a conscious writer and a conscientious writer. So um, I'm conscious because I'm aware of what is happening. I don't play this both sides game, which many people have been doing in India. I'm aware of what is happening in this country and uh, I'm politically aware. So uh, there's a difference between people who are aware and people who are politically aware, right? So uh, I am politically aware. I understand what is happening with the politics mm, uh, in, in this country. And, and I don't pretend that uh, I, I, I speak for everyone. I speak for the truth, which I think is, is, is right. And uh, I understand my role as a journalist. I'm supposed to speak truth to power. Okay. Now, uh, you can freely do your journalism only when the social and political conditions are right. In India, as of now, both conditions are not right for the practice of free journalism. Or let's say that we have started to set boundaries for ourselves, that we uh, can say certain things without inviting prosecution or without inviting wrath of supporters of the regime or uh, without hurting sentiments because nowadays uh, uh, people's sentiments get hurt at the drop of a hat. So even if you uh, uh, say the most harmless of things or crack a joke, I mean, come on, people have been arrested in India in recent times for not cracking a joke, okay? Right, for a comedian, a stand-up comedian who was arrested recently, he was arrested simply because they thought that he was about to crack a joke that would hurt religious sentiments. So now you are being uh, arrested for things that you think. So uh, when you operate in, in, in that scenario, you have to be conscious uh, about your own limits, about your own freedoms. 
Uh, at the same time, you also have to be conscientious so that you don't end up doing the wrong thing and the wrong, right and wrong, the concept exists uh, at, at several levels. There's a moral aspect to it. I see myself as somebody whose moral compass always points northwards. And I understand that when young activists are arrested, they are being arrested not for make, uh, committing any crime, but just because dissent is no longer recognized in India. So we always used to say that dissent is an inherent part of democracy, right? So now it is going to be a democracy which is going to be confined only to elections and not anything else. And dissent is being increasingly criminalized and, and delegitimized and dehumanized. So I call myself a conscious and a conscientious journalist. So uh, I'm aware of, uh, of the political situation. I'm aware uh, I... I, I do have a stand uh, in life. I do take a stand. I don't say that I, I speak for both sides. I don't. I don't speak for both sides. There's, uh, you see, <laughs> uh, I think Shashi Tharoor gives a very nice example in his Oxford Union lecture, right? So when you say that contribution suffering was from both sides, he says that you can't say that a burglar who comes into your house ransacks the house and then stuffs his toe, then you can't say that to suffering on both sides, right? So I think it's the same here. I mean, I'm just using that as an analogy. So uh, there's there are no both sides here. I mean, there's, I think, either something is wrong or something is right. So I have taken a stand on this that makes me uh, conscientious. What motivated you to write this book? Because as I read it, it's not a traditional biography in that sense. It offers a lot more with a particular focus on contemporary issues. So as I told you, I am a student of history, uh, but I never really thought that I would write a book on the Mughals. Okay, So uh, history, Mughals, of course, they I do take a lot of interest in the Mughal Empire, but I'll also take a lot of interest in, in the British Empire and in modern history, more than early modern history, because my specialization in my master's was was modern India, not early modern India um, or medieval India. Um, but uh, in 2014, we had a new government in power uh, in India. And in 2015, uh, members of the ruling party started making noises about Akbar and the Mughals. Of course, there was always a section in India that believed that not just the Mughals, but every Muslim dynasty or ruler in India's history was bad. So you would always find, I mean, we have been on social media for far longer than this regime has been in power. So we have noticed, um, I remember seeing uh, comments and tweets and all kinds of arguments that people were putting forward, say around 2011, 2010, even before then. The Mughals were bad and and, and everyone else was bad. <laughs> only, only the Marathas were good because they were Hindus. Um, and, uh, so, uh, that noise just increased, uh, in 2015 when, uh, one of their ministers asked a question on the anniversary or birth anniversary of Rana Pratap, Rana Pratap, the king of, uh, Mewar, uh, Akbar's contemporary. So he said that why is only Akbar called the great? Why not Rana Pratap? Okay. So uh, that comment by Rajnath Singh led to uh, such a noise on social media. 
by members of the ruling party, ministers, as well as uh, minions of, of the party in power and all its supporters. Uh, and they say things like, uh, and one of the spokespersons actually compared Akbar to Adolf Hitler, you know. <laughs> and uh, she said things like, and um, another of the ministers said that, you know, you don't have streets named after Adolf Hitler in Germany today. So why do we have streets in New Delhi named after Mughal emperors? So that's how this whole thing began. And there was such a tremendous noise that I decided to uh, correct the perspective or let's say offer a corrective by writing a series of articles in the Times of India on Akbar and the Mughals. And uh, also did a video, I think, uh, a Facebook Live uh, from my office on this. And uh, but then it was not helping really. So obviously when when a narrative starts taking shape no matter how much you say things to the contrary people don't tend to listen but uh, i didn't know that my publisher bloomsbury uh, was also reading those articles so uh, in 2017 uh, the bloomsbury editor and i we were introduced by a common friend so she she told me that uh, no i should meet him and and uh, you know because he was saying things like no i should think about more trade uh, publishing. So we met and then he asked me, my, my editor, Pravin Tiwari, he asked me if I could expand the thought that I've been putting out uh, in the Times of India in the form of a book. And uh, then he said, uh, why don't you write a book on Akbar? He didn't ask for a biography. We, we were very conscious right from the beginning that we will not attempt a biography. Uh, but something around Akbar, that's something there was no, absolutely no clarity about. What something are you going to write about Akbar? Because there is a, a very diff, extensive biography by Sir Vincent Smith, who wrote in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and a whole lot of other people had also written about Akbar. There are so many academic studies on Akbar and the Mughals. So it was a challenge to, to find something new to say about Akbar. But I also realized that there was not a mainstream or a trade biography or a book on Akbar for a very long time. There was one fiction, fictional account written by a journalist uh, on Akbar a few years earlier, but no real uh, non-fiction on Akbar in a very long time. So uh, then I asked uh, if we could, you know, give a compare and contrast side of a sort of a scenario in a book where... I talk about Akbar and place him in his own time and context. And at the same time, I try to make sense of the modern politics around Akbar and the Mughals. So uh, Praveen liked the idea. Plumsbury liked the idea and they commissioned it. And uh, that's how uh, the whole thing began. So eventually I decided to compare and contrast not just the Mughals, but also uh, uh, several other empires. You know, I brought them into context whenever I was talking about a certain aspect of Akbar's life. So uh, it's it's the chronological order is pretty much like a biography. But uh, at the same time, I have also tried to comment on very modern things. And I've tried to analyze how, how some of the things, uh, how do we make sense of some of the policies that Akbar undertook or uh, or his wars and conquests or his personality and and how he uh, how how do we understand him in the 21st century so uh, when you when you're saying things like he was uh, which is the liberal argument by the way that akbar was a very secular and and a very liberal monarch 
So how does that argument, uh, uh, how does that stand uh, if we look at it from a historical point of view? So clearly secularism, liberalism, these were concepts that did not exist in Akbar's own time. So we cannot call him a secular liberal monarch that way. He was very tolerant, no doubt. But uh, the other side, of course, says that, no, he was as bad as Hitler and, and just like another tyrant. Now, the thing is, in the 16th century, you don't expect absolute monarchs to behave like Democrats, right? So uh, I have factored in both these arguments in my book, that he was essentially a man of his times, and uh, we need to understand him in that way. But a very remarkable man for his age, somebody whose who's thought, whose words still makes sense in today's India. So essentially, uh, what I have done with my book is that I have tried to show that how certain things have remained just the same, even though time has progressed so much, uh, because the motivations of power have always remained the same. It's just that you no longer execute your opponents, you delegitimize and dehumanize them and call them uh, agents of foreign powers and all that, which is happening in India today, right? So you are pretty much an absolute monarch in every sense where people deify you, they worship you, they will not question your word. But at the same time, you're not executing your opponents your, uh, because you know that's not the democratic way. So essentially, uh, things have remained the same, even though they have changed. And um, at the same time, uh, we are, uh, I'm, I'm trying to show him as a man of his time. So yeah, that's how, that's why the book was written. So essentially, it's an, it's an answer, answer to all that communal rhetoric, which we hear whenever Muslim kings and emperors are mentioned. At the same time, it is also uh, a fact-checking exercise where we show uh, the liberal side that, you know, uh, those liberal arguments don't stand uh, when it comes to history. These are retrospectively applied labels. Are there any legitimate claims or concerns that exist from those that have criticisms of Akbar from a historical standing? Yes, actually, because, uh, see, you have to understand that um, these were all medieval or early modern kings, right? So even if you uh, look at the other emperor of India's history, uh, who was called great, Emperor Ashoka, Emperor Ashoka is said to have massacred 100,000 people at the Battle of Kalinga, right? Out of which he suffers uh, guilt and he decides to give up the path of war, right? That's the story. And there's in fact a rock edict there, uh, which talks about Ashoka giving up the path of war. He expressing remorse at having to massacre so many innocent people uh, in order to, uh, to conquer the territory of Kalinga. But in that same rock edict, he is also threatening the forest dwellers, the Adifasis, that they should not resist the powers of the state, right? So this is the other side which doesn't come forward very often. Um, and uh, I think we have had that relationship forever because even today you see uh, how the Indian state deals with Adivasis and tribals and how their lands are increasingly occupied. Um, um, their traditional way of life you know, gets disrupted all the time. And the, which is why you have, you know, a lot of these uh, counter uh, violence, which happens in the form of uh, Maoist insurgency and all of that. So essentially all of this happens in those areas, right? Where the Adipasis live. So um, uh, I think I, I do see a consistency there. Right? What Ashoka is, is telling the Adivasis and what the modern Indian state is, is doing 
uh, with uh, resistance that way. So I think there's a lot of similarity in that. And when it comes to the Mughals, we have to understand, and I think there's a very recent book which has come out, and, and I think you should read it, uh, by Dr. Priya Atwal. It's on the Sikh kingdom, right? The rise and fall of the Sikh empire where she puts a lot of these arguments in context, where she says that uh, the traditional understanding uh, or the Sikh understanding of the Mughals tends to be colored by the Mughal state's oppressive policies, right? But they were not necessarily done because of religious reasons. There were no religious motivations for doing that. It's just that uh, what Sikhi was trying to do or what the gurus were saying uh, in terms of confining temporal power and spiritual power around them, was seen by the Mughal state as a threat to their own legitimacy, right? But at the same time, you see uh, in the 19th century, you have texts that say that Babur actually was asked by Guru Nanak Ji to, uh, to be the emperor. And then he was also given uh, his, his, his moral, uh, the moral ground was provided by Guru Nanak Ji that, you know, Babur and, and, your, and your descendants will rule India as long as they are fair to the people and they don't violate the code of ethics and all that. So, uh, which is showing what really? You are not showing the Mughals as delegitimate people, right? So it's just that you are negotiating with, with the Mughal world. Uh, if you look at Guru Gobind Singh Zafarnama, for instance, Zafarnama is a piece of uh, writing which is pretty much rooted in the Indo-Persian uh, writing um, uh, style, which, is, which the Mughals were very familiar with. So you are answering the Mughals in their own language, right? So, and uh, we also have to see that uh, even when Guru Gobind Singh's sons are executed uh, by the Mughal governor of Lahore, even then the Guru does not talk about the Mughals being delegitimate, uh, illegitimate rulers, and he does not talk about the overthrow of the Mughals. So this is what Dr. Atwal is arguing in her book as well. So there's a very complicated relationship that that uh, the Sikh state also had uh, with the Mughals. And in fact, they face a lot of resistance from the Hindu hill states, as well as other rivals of the Gurus. You know, so all of that needs to be contextualized. So the Mughals were building a pan-India empire and an empire building is a gut-wrenching process. So you cannot have a peaceful empire building, right? No empire in history has ever been peaceful. You look at the Mongols, look at the British, look at anybody else. So obviously, uh, they did fight a lot of wars and conquests. They never needed any justification to wage war, the Mughals, okay? So whosoever stood in their way would either fall in line and accept their suzerainty and become allies, or they would be annihilated, or just say, removed from power. So this is what the Mughal state was doing. And uh, a lot of this happens because that's how state formation is like. So you do resist people, you crush heads, um, but then to see this only to the prism of religion, I think is, is wrong simply because we have to understand that when you are, we are reading these uh, early modern texts, the chronicles of the Mughals or any other dynasty preceding them, we have to understand that a lot of the justifications that you find in those written texts, those justifications may not have existed in real life. So uh, an emperor or a sultan would have to be shown as a good Muslim and therefore all his wars and conquests would be portrayed or projected as holy war or jihad or something like that. Uh, and that, you know, a lot of these uh, non-believers were killed and crushed and all that. But in reality, many of those things may have, uh, may not have happened or may have happened in a, in a, in a much less 
uh, grand way the the way uh, the texts tell us. So if you are saying that you know third for thirty thousand or forty thousand people were exterminated in one go, you have to understand that the writer obviously is exaggerating because I'm giving I'm saying this in the context of Chitor uh, because this is one thing which keeps coming up against Akbar again and again. And I have analyzed the Battle of Chitor and the whole campaign of Chitor. Now. Um, Abul Fazal, Akbar's principal biographer or chronicler, says that the emperor executed 30,000 people in one day, right? And uh, in the same text later on, in that same chapter, he says that most of the people were taken prisoners. Now, why does he say he was executed? So we have to understand his motivations because he is showing his emperor even greater than Sultan Alauddin Khilji, who supposedly killed much less people in his own conquest of Chitorgar. So... How do you show that uh, my ruler, my my monarch is a is a better, a superior monarch? So firstly, he took much less time than Alauddin. Alauddin took uh, uh, eight months, or more than six months. And Akbar took five months, less than six months. So that way he's greater. He killed more people, that way he's greater. So these are ways or, or hooks that were used by uh, these contemporary authors to make their claims or them make the claims of their masters more legitimate. And uh, we see this on the Rajput side as well. So when you say that, you know, look at the Chitor or the later Ghati campaign, so you've, you'd find that the 20,000, 30,000 uh, people on the part of uh, Maharana Pratap who are fighting against the Mughals, when actual figures, today's historians believe that the Rana of Mewar never had more than 3,000 people on his side and the Mughal army was no bigger than 5,000 men. So instead of 30,000, 40,000 people fighting, so you have to understand. So you have to reconcile these figures, you know, these exaggerations uh, and and then understand these conflicts. So um, yes, it is possible to just pick the atrocities or the or the killings and show the Mughal rulers as bad for India or, or as terrible tyrants. But that is possible to do with every ruler across faiths. You pull out the kind number of people who died in battle, fighting for them or against them, you can show pretty much everyone is a tyrant, right? Um, but uh, yes, but there are certain things about, say for instance, Aurangzeb was very different from Akbar in certain ways because he under, he had a certain idea of kingship and which is very much rooted in in the islamic code and that's why you would always find uh, paintings of aurangzeb especially of his later life where he is a bent man you know his finger is on the holy book and there's a halo behind his head and he's uh, almost having a, a hunchback a hunch, he's hunchbacked almost because the weight of the word of the of 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 god's law is on his shoulders so he's a man who actually follows uh, the islamic tenet much more vigorously than any of his predecessors which is why that 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 impression comes across but at the same time he was not the man that he is made out to be today so uh, these are things that we have to keep in mind so it is possible to completely vilify the moguls but then it's possible to do that with pretty much everyone. So uh, Akbar, uh, though, had a much better relationship with the Sikh gurus um, because um, relations started worsening from Jahangir's period when he executed Guru Arjan Dev and then this whole 
you know, resistance happens after that. But it's really after Guru Gobind Singh that we actually see the Mughal state fighting against the Sikh state or the remnants of, of the missiles um, who are there. And eventually uh, that shapes memory because uh, towards the end of uh, 18th century, you had the Sikh missiles storming Delhi, which is a symbol of power, of, of Mughal power. And the same imagery is conjured up by the farmers in Delhi because what happened in the Republic Day uh, this year, you know, uh, many of the protesters stormed the Red Fort and and planted the Nishan Sahib. They said that our great ancestors had done that. So we are just coming back and doing the same thing. We just want Delhi to understand that this is what our ancestors did and we can do this even today. So this understanding on this relationship of Delhi being a seat of power has been forever entrenched in, in public memory. So this is how memory works. So um, if you look at Akbar, it was very different. He had adversarial relationships with a lot of uh, powers, but then because he was a very spiritual man in many ways, very curious spiritually, and he tried to find uh, good in every faith, in every panth, which is why you see that he engaged quite a bit with, with the Sikh gurus as, as well as uh, Jain priests uh, and, and Buddhists, all kinds of people. So with the Jains especially, he had a tremendously good relationship because uh, he patronized them, gave them titles, called the somebody Jagat Guru, gave somebody a title of Jagat Guru, gave titles like Khush Fahim to, to Jain priests, monks, and uh, even gave uh, housing and the permission to build a Jain temple inside the fort of Lahore because his favorite Jain priest used to one day took very long to come to turn up and, in court because the emperor had invited him and he asked him, why are you late? He said, My, uh, your majesty, because I live so far away, there's no quarters for us here. And the emperor immediately orders that they be given a monastery and they be given land for a temple within the fort of Agra, uh, of, of Lahore. And that's how the whole monastery comes up inside the fort of Lahore. So that's how Akbar was, right? He issues proclamations. Uh, the Jains go to him asking for prohibitory orders against uh, uh, killing of animals, butchering uh, during their holy uh, festival of Parayushan for 21 days, like you are supposed not supposed to have meat. So Akbar issues a farman, says that wherever the Jains are in a majority or where their populations are concentrated, please do not sacrifice animals in any which way. And he repeats that farmar. It's not that it was just a one-time affair. He repeats it several times. Then the Jains also convince him to issue a farman prohibiting cow slaughter in his empire. So he also does that. So a very curious man that way. I mean, very, very productive mind. So he was taking into account, he was increasingly observing Indian customs and traditions. And I guess he can... Uh, commissioned the translation projects. He translated Indic texts like the Ramayana and the Mahabharat, Atharvave, Naldamanti, all these uh, holy scriptures of, of Hindus. He got them translated into Persian. And, and in fact, the Mahabharat was considered to be a, a mandatory study for all Mughal princes across the empire. So you, are have, you have to study it. Remember it. So... Um, with Akbar, I think uh, after a certain point, it becomes very difficult to accuse him of being a bigot or or anything like that, which 
the right wing always tries to claim. Um, because then you have to also look at the other things that he was doing. He was, uh, you know, having, he was marrying Hindu women. He was doing uh, fire worship. He was worshipping the sun god, you know, which the Jains taught him. 1001 names of the sun god, which he would chant with the Rudraksh Mala. And uh, then he was also um, uh, hobnobbing with Jesuit priests. Uh, in fact, they believed for a very long time that they would be able to convert Akbar to Christianity. And uh, Akbar said that he's not going to convert, but the, the priests are free to try and convert his children to Christian, Christianity. I mean, if, if they are willing. Uh, that's when the royal ladies intervene and they say that, no, no, this is not possible. So changing of faith is not going to be allowed under no circumstances. So the women actually stopped that. But uh, yes, yeah, so he, he does come across as a very remarkable man for his age. I mean, you don't hear of emperors uh, who are holding court and, you know, who are very informal in their ways and and uh, who are not following the dogmas of faith. Uh, so I think he was a man who made up his own mind and found his own truths. So that way, uh, Akbar was very remarkable. There's no doubt about that. So I think a lot of these uh, arguments eventually will fall flat simply because you don't have, you would not have the evidence to show. I mean, of course, historians always contextualize uh, even violence, right? So it, it doesn't happen randomly. There's always a context behind that. So um, I think uh, uh, one one point which comes up very frequently is the concept the, of skaltas, which I have dealt with in my book. Like Akbar erected towers of the heads of Rajputs after his Chitor victory. Or he actually erected far more skull towers after his defeat of the Sultans of Bengal. Okay, so after the Bengal Sultanate is defeated, so Akbar actually erects far too many skull towers uh, in Bengal, then at Chitor. And uh, even Hindu kings in Assam, <clears throat> like the Ahoms and the Kochis, when they fought, the Koch kings who were Hindus, um, they erected skull towers <laughs> with the heads of slain Ahom army, um, men of the Ahom army. So this was happening across the empire, across the world. Look at what Taimur was doing, right? So he was erecting skull towers everywhere he was going. Look at what the Ottomans were doing. They were doing it. We'll look at what Vlad the Impaler was doing in, in Wallachia, right? So it was happening in Europe. It was happening in Asia, everywhere. So the Mughals don't stand out really when it comes to atrocities uh, on people. But yes, those atrocities did happen. Uh, protests and rebellions were put down in a very severe fashion, with an iron hand. And uh, the Mughals were very ruthless empire builders that way. Uh, but at the same time, they were also uh, donators, very generous um, donators to religious institutions. And, and uh, uh, they, they attracted talent, promoted merit. So I think uh, a very remarkable man that way, Akbar. When you speak of the religious tolerance spiritual acceptance and the patronage of religious minority heritage and identities, what comparisons or parallels were you trying to draw with respect to a modern India? So you see, um, you know, uh, in India, we have defined ourselves as a secular republic, right? And the word secular in itself is there in the preamble of our constitution. Now, a lot of these... Uh, 
right-wing people, they claim that, oh, the Indian constitution was never secular. It was just an after an amendment that the word secular was introduced into the preamble. Now, the thing is, even without that word, Indian constitution, the basic structure of the Indian constitution is still secular, right? Nobody can deny that. Now, but we have to understand what that definition is. I mean, the Indian idea of secularism is very different from the, the Western idea of secularism. Here, we have actually articulated Akbar's Sulhekul. Okay? So we haven't been able to go beyond that definition. So the Indian secularism, which talks about uh, plurality, tolerance, uh, these are not secular in the, in, the, in, the, in the truest sense that it is used in the West, where uh, secular states are essentially, there's, they don't have any state religion, they're atheist states, right? So um, here we tolerate everyone and you would find that our prime ministers as well as our presidents in the past have, have, have organized iftar parties on Eid or during the month of Ramzan. We have uh, performed Christmas or, uh, or um, celebrated Christmas and uh, religious festivals of Hindus as well, Diwalis and all that. So um, a secular institution doesn't do all that, right? But the Mughals used to do that. They would celebrate Nowruz, which was uh, essentially a Iranian and originally non-Muslim tradition, the New Year, Nowruz. And uh, they would celebrate Holi, they would celebrate Diwali, they would celebrate Shab-e Barat. So these are all kinds of customs that they were. Uh, and in, in fact, you would find that even in their paintings, you would see uh, Christ and Mother Mary being constantly invoked. So every holy <clears throat> or every, a lot of these uh, important Mughal women were referred to as Marys of their age. Akbar's uh, own mother, Hamida Bano Begum, she was referred to as Maryam Uz Makani. And uh, Akbar's Hindu wife, who, who bore Jahangir, uh, mother of uh, Jahangir, uh, the, the Rajput wife, the Hindu wife, she was referred to as Maryam Uzzamani or the Mary of the Age. So you would have all these uh, Christian terms which are also coming in into the Mughal lexicon. So uh, that is essentially how the Indian state today still is. We are doing all of that. But yes, now increasingly there has been a disturbing trend where important leaders, important functionaries of the government people occupying constitutional positions also sometimes show more inclination towards uh, wishing or not wishing certain communities, minority communities on their special occasions, only wishing Hindus and celebrating Hindu festivals. For instance, this whole Christmas holiday was diluted after this regime came to power and it was declared to be a good governance day because Christmas also happens to be the birthday of uh, former Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee, who was a BJP man. A lot of people uh, understood it as uh, a ploy to poke Christians in the eye that, okay, on your holy festival Christmas, we'll celebrate it as, it, it was a holiday earlier, now it has been, uh, that holiday, it no longer is a, is a holiday. So you have Good Governance Day, where schools are supposed to uh, function, offices uh, work to full strength. 
these are messages. I mean, there's a certain kind of disturbing messaging which has been adopted, no doubt. So I have noted with a lot of alarm in my book that gradually uh, we are going away from the paths. The trajectory was pretty much set by our ancestors. So you have to understand that the Mughals show the path to the British. The British take over. They don't upset that. I mean, they try in certain ways, but then by and large, the Indian state that inherits uh, power from the British tries to go back to the, the same old model of kingship uh, or, or of, of patronage of, of people of different faiths or um, following the path set forward by Akbar. So it's essentially the same sulhekul or peace for all, which we have, which, which, which we have in this country today. So... Um, that way, I think whatever is happening, because Akbar talks about taking everyone on board, right? So, and our prime minister, Mr. Modi, when he came to power, he also gave the same kind of a slogan, Sabka Saath, Sabka Vikas. Sabka Saath means, uh, you know, everyone, everyone on board and, and there's progress for all. So, Sulhekul is also peace for all, right? So, everyone gets the same benefit. And Akbar, we see this transformation in him because he was not always this man, when he starts off uh, at the age of 13, and by the way, we are recording this on the 15th of February. 14th of February is the day when 1556, when Akbar was coronated as emperor at Kalanor in Punjab. Oh, that seat is still there. That platform is still there in Punjab today. And uh, for the first few years, he was pretty much unremarkable as a ruler. So he was no different from any of his predecessors. Um, so he did things, he got taken for a ride by the ulema or the clergy. And we don't see this open-mindedness that we see in him in his later life. Um, so, uh, but then, because he existed in a world where a lot of these different social groups were intermingling, right? And there was also this bhakti and the Sufi movement which had happened centuries earlier. I was just about to ask you on that, actually, um, about the regional impact of Punjab on him from, say, Sufism in Punjab to the Bhakti movement and so on and so forth. Because the Mughals established their base in Punjab first, right? So Akbar is the governor of Punjab when Humayun dies, right? So it's, it's from Punjab that the story of the empire begins, and uh, now Lahore was always a power center. Long back, uh, you had the Ghaznavids who established Lahore as a power base, right? Um, Mahmud Ghaznavi who comes uh, and the Ghaznavid Empire had Lahore as its, uh, um, as its frontier. And uh, when you see the Ghurids come, challenge them later, and the Ghurids under uh, Shahabuddin uh, Ghuri, and his commanders, they start raiding into the territory of the Ghaznavids and they occupy Lahore, right? So Lahore always was the bigger city and the more important city. So that's where Akbar actually establishes his base first, right? So Mughals come, occupy Lahore. Akbar is there in Punjab. And then Humayun marches on towards Delhi where uh, he has an unfortunate accident and he dies. So... Punjab is pretty much the base and you you have the, the physical uh, representation of that 
in, in the throne platform where Akbar was coronated. It lies there. It's an ASI protected monument. But I think uh, that's, the, that's where the story begins, really, uh, for the Mughals. And uh, Akbar was, like I said, he existed in a world which had already uh, populated by the ideals of the Bhakti and the Sufi movement. So a lot of these uh, intermingling of faiths about uh, the oneness of God, about a universal God, which, uh, by the way, Kabir talks about. Um, Kabir's concept of Tawheed, which is uh, one God, one universal God, right? So essentially it means monotheism, but in this context, we have to understand it as one universal God. So it's not just the God for the Muslims. He's God for the Hindus. He's God for the Sikhs. He's God for the Christians, everyone else, right? So this uh, was again re-articulated by Akbar and, and his chronicler, Abul Fazal. So these are the two very key men in, in Akbar's court. So Abul Fazal's father, um, uh, Sheikh uh, Mubarak, and then uh, his brother Fezi and he himself, and a few other people. So they essentially contextualize or let's say they give a definite shape to Akbar's philosophy of life as well as rule. And uh, Akbar, because of his conquest, for the first time he comes in contact with the Rajputs, right? And, and he's, uh, by the way, very impressed by the bravery of the Rajputs. There's an incident which I have mentioned in my book where the Rajputs come in and Akbar was, had this habit of playing uh, very dangerous games, right? So he would fight with elephants, especially those elephants that would go must, you know, go berserk. So that's the kind of elephants Akbar would love to tame and he would do it all alone, right? So uh, there he was riding an elephant that had gone berserk and everyone else ran away. It was only the Rajput contingent that did not move, okay? Because Raja Bharmal of Kashwaha of Amir had come to see him. So Bharmal and his contingent, they held their ground. They did not move. And Akbar was very, very impressed to see that. And uh, later on when uh, Bharmal, uh, actually I'm taking some time, please don't mind, but this is very interesting because what happens is Bharmal and we also have to uh, understand uh, uh, Hindu-Muslim or Rajput-Mughal relationship through this, that uh, Raja Bharmal, um, had had become the king after his elder brother's death. Okay, and going by the rules of kingship, he was supposed to pass on the crown to his nephew, the son of the king. Right. In this case, his name was uh, Sujamal. So Sujamal was supposed to inherit the throne from his uncle, but uh, the uncle was in no more mind to renounce his throne. So he announced his own son, Bhagwan Das, as the rightful king, as his heir. And Sujamal felt very offended. So Sujamal wanted his patrimony back. So whom does he go to? He goes to the Mughal governor of Ajmer. And that was Sharfuddin Hussain. Mirza Sharfuddin Hussain guarantees him. We see this in the movie Jodha Akbar as well, if you see. But of course, it's not uh, very accurate, the, the depiction. What actually happens is Sujamal, uh, in, the, in the movie, Sharfuddin Hussain is shown as giving Sujamal certain conditions that, okay, I'm going to rebel against the emperor and you'll have to support me in exchange for my support. And he only promises to speak to the emperor on his behalf. But, but the real Sharfuddin Hussain actually uh, gave him his word that he's going to help him get back his own kingdom. So he lays siege to Amir and captures uh, two sons and a nephew of... Uh, um, of um, uh, Raja Bharmal 
and then he takes them hostages and then he says that if you don't return the kingdom to sujamal then i'm going to ensure that your sons also don't return or your your, your family members also don't return now he's in a soup now what does he do he goes to akbar akbar who is sharfuddin's master he goes to delhi and says that emperor please i rescue my family because your own mirza has taken them captive and please also marry my daughter this is how actually it happens so uh, and that's how akbar agrees he he agrees to marry the daughter of raja bharmal that's how this woman comes into his life uh, who whom history or popular history misidentifies as jodhabai but her real name may have been harkhabai or hirkanwar but she was the daughter of raja bharmal and then akbar agrees to marry her and he also puts pressure on the mirza to release his hostages so the actually the the hostages are released because akbar is relentless that you have to release them you have to release them or the, or you're going to face my wrath so um and then he marries her and then eventually he also marries other hindu women but the but after marrying these women and uh, man singh her nephew as well as bhagwan das her brother and raja bharmal her father all of them enter mughal service so they are given mansabs they all become mughal commanders and akbar is very fond of man singh like he calls him his own son farzand okay so uh, and he gives him all kinds of rewards puts him in very high office man singh was the first mughal commander to be appointed a haft hazari mansabdar which is like a commander of 7000 men which was the highest that any non mughal prince uh could aspire for the highest office so he was man singh was given that and uh, because these rajputs come with their own hindu customs and practices akbar gets influenced by them so you see that uh, this whole refashioning of akbar as an indo muslim king happens around this time okay so um uh he um starts wearing the kaleva which is like a sacred thread on a, on on his wrist then he applies tilak on his forehead on his birthdays and he would not eat non veg on his birthdays which i think is very strange because that's usually the day when you are supposed to eat a lot uh, but then he stops eating meat uh, on his birthdays and uh, starts performing homa which is like a fire sacrifice that the hindus do so all these things only add to his world view so he becomes more tolerant of of the hindus because now he's actually seeing them in his own life in his own palace he's seeing their mannerisms and their customs and the rajputs because they no longer see moguls as outsiders so the term that was used for uh, i mean if you look at the old rajput records right from the time of prithviraj chauhan what do you see uh, there the muslims are being referred to as the mlechas mlecha means an outsider or a savage or yavana uh, a term that was used also for the greeks the ionians yavana is also applied to muslims and uh, and also there are some you know very communal slurs sometimes which you come across that they are accused of being eaters of prohibited flesh that is they eat uh, beef so that is considered to be taboo by hindus so that's why they are they are mocked and ridiculed as people who eat prohibited flesh so uh, but all of that changes with with akbar because now he is also being seen as part of the rajput system okay and akbar 
I mean, it's considered to be no longer taboo to marry off Rajput women to, to the Mughals from this point on. Because uh, he is referred to as Kaushalya Putra in the Rajput accounts, Kaushalya Putra being Ram. He is Lord Ram or he is the personification or the new avatar of Lord Ram. He's a Vishnu avatar. Um, he is compared with um, Arjun of the Mahabharata. And in fact, uh, when uh, Rana Pratap and he fight, the Rajput sources actually call it a battle between Karna and Arjuna. In this case, Karna is, is Akbar and <laughs> Arjuna is Rana Pratap. So it's like that. So um, essentially they are members of the same family. So what do you understand from this reference is that the Mughals are also being seen as no different from the Rajputs. They're as brave, as valiant. They have their own codes of chivalry. And in fact, uh, there are stories that say that even Lord Indra, who is like the god of heaven, he gets very worried that Akbar is going to come and invade his kingdom and take over his kingship. So it's like that. You know? So you see that the, the, the military aspect of Akbar's life, his, his, he is seen as somebody who is invincible, very powerful. That gets wedded to very Hindu ideas about, about gods and, and powerful people, right? So um, you see this, this intermingling which is happening now. And, the, and this is not one way, by the way. Uh, the Mughals also start following Rajput codes. You see uh, the Chhatris start emerging in their architecture, which is very Rajput, right? In their forts, you see the Chhatris and many other Rajput symbols also come. The way they dress up, the, day, the way they keep their mustaches also appears very Rajput if you look at certain paintings. There seem to be a ton of references to go by and it is so well documented. So how do the current spokespeople that denounce it reconcile all of this despite such historical records? Because they don't do any history. They don't read any history. They read history through screenshots and WhatsApp forwards. So I have noticed this. that In fact, I keep say, telling people that, you know, if you're so happy with screenshots being shared and if you believe them to be the gospel truth, you should uh, actually uh, send your stop sending your kids to schools and colleges and universities and just hand them these screenshots and then they would come up, come up with a degree. That would compensate for a university degree. They don't really uh, understand history. There's, there's no inclination to understand any history. Uh, it's just that selective application of, of historical episodes or of historical facts minus their contexts, okay? So, um, I mean, how do, you, how do you show them to be non-Indian, right? Because in every sense, even when Akbar is abusing people, he is using Hindi, right? So you, you see that, and I mentioned this in my book, that you know, he uses very modern Hindi galis that we use. You know? So in, in North India, we are very familiar with certain kinds of expletives today. Um, and Akbar is using them. And we see this in, in the episode of Adham Khan when Akbar uh, executes him for murdering his, his, uh, his Atalik or his, his guardian. Not Atalik, but uh, his... Uh, uh, his Prime Minister, Shamshuddin Atka Khan. And uh, there's this line in, in Bayazid Bayat's uh, chronicle of, of that episode. He says that the emperor, in the fit of rage, spoke in Hindi. So, Hazrat Bazoban Hindustani Farbudan ke e, and then there's the gun, the, 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 the gali that comes. 
chera atka mora kusti she is why did you kill my atka or why did you kill my foster father right so um uh, that conversation happens and then there's this evidence that when he is very angry he is he is abusing in hindi so all that chaste persian and everything else the courtly language that they were speaking so all that is forgotten in that moment of rage so he is actually talking like you and i when we are angry right so we are abusing people and using all kinds of gali so akbar was doing all that in that time <laughs> so it becomes very difficult to argue that they were non indian certainly they came from outside babar came from outside uh, Humayun was also not born on in Indian soil, but Akbar was born on in Indian soil, in the house of a Rajput. And one of the first women. So when the child is born, uh, he is breastfed by his mother, and then he is passed on to other uh, women who are nur- to nurse him. You know, there are other women, wet nurses, right? So all these angas, jiji anga, mahamanga, they were all. wet nurses so they were all had their kids and they were lactating women so they were also breastfeeding the emperor so there's a whole retinue of of women there so the mother passes on akbar's mother after breastfeeding the child passes him to a hindu woman called daya bhaval okay is believed to be a hindu woman so the second woman who breastfeeds him as a baby is a hindu woman so how do you change all of that so that way i think it's very difficult when you start arguing with facts but historical evidence and uh contextual evidence of course i mean you can't just selectively apply facts just like that if you put all of that in context then it becomes very difficult to argue that they were non indians i mean they're pretty much indians akbar onwards definitely i mean they lived here they died here they are buried on this soil they did not take out wealth of this country and and develop their own ancestral homelands did they 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 spend all the money here so that's what differentiates them from others who came after them like the british the british drained the wealth of india the moguls never did that yeah i really like the part of your analysis where you talk about in history that this transitional power mechanism always keeps the powers that be to remain consistently in power and so i wanted to ask When we consider the Indic region that has gone through so many empires and kingdoms, only to now be reduced as India in the form of a nation state, which is itself a relatively new concept, what do you notice or observe some of the things that are say hypocritical from those that possess a Hindu nationalistic ideology and cite the region as a rightfully Hindu state? You see, when when they are talking about Hindu nationalism, so they are already talking about a glorious past. They are imagining a glorious past. Okay, so none of this is, none of the imagery is very modern. So what do you see? The most common arguments that you come across from the Hindu nationalist groups is that we were a glorious civilization until the Muslims came and destroyed us. Right. So a past that you talk about, which abs- you have absolutely no idea about, you imagine that there were great Hindu kings like the Guptas and the Mauryas before them. But then, uh, the individual fates of many of these people were very different. So some of them are Jain, some of them turned Buddhists. So you are not willing to talk about all these complexities. You just want to portray the past as one big, whole, homogeneous Hindu uh, country. which always existed and then you go back several millennia now in fact there's an attempt to further date it further back in time so you are going back to as close as the stone age even before that 
the claim that Hindus were already very civilized people and all that. And you would always find this, even in mainstream movies, that dialogue is often used to to somehow uh, denounce the West. They say that long before your ancestors had started to learn how to wear clothes, our ancestors were already writing the Vedas. Uh, that is a very wrong argument which has been repeated <laughs> again and again in cinema, mainstream Indian cinema. It's not like that. Now, um, to think that India was some sort of a cradle of civilization, I think is very wrong because then you are ignoring how different civilizations have developed over time. Of course, all of them interacted. All of them had... Uh, um, it's like a, what, the, what Mahatma Gandhi says a house with all its windows open, right? So you have everything which is entering your house. So the entire concept of human civilization has evolved, not through isolation, but through these mutual connections. So the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Indians, or the Harappans, when I say Indians, they were all interacting, right? Um, and through that, we have an understanding of civilization. The same way, all these different empires, you look at the Mughal Empire, look at the Safavid, the Ottoman Empire, the Habsburg Empires, All of them, the British, the Portuguese, the Danes, the Dutch, the Indians, all of them were interacting, right? So all these ideas came uh, from outside. Some of the ideas came from outside. We assimilated them. Some of our ideas went outside from here. And they were adopted by people. So that's how the whole thing has began, uh, has happened through through the past. Now, um, I see this consistently that uh, when it comes to the Hindu nationalist imagination, it is not a democratic imagination. Okay, So they don't see, they don't want to share power with any other community. And if you understand uh, Hindu nationalism through Savarkar was like its most, um, like he gave the definition of Hindutva uh, or Hindu nationalism and the rest of them have followed that. He always, and people who believed in him and some of them were his contemporaries, they always believed that Muslims and Christians can never be Indians truly because their holy lands are outside the subcontinent. For the Muslims, it's Mecca. And for, for the Christians, it's, it's Jerusalem and, um, and others. So uh, they thought that people from these two faiths can never be Indian. And because now they have retrospectively applied that, to include the Muslim dynasties as well. So these can't be Indian simply because the holy lands are outside the subcontinent. Now, that is essentially an understanding, uh, a very exclusivist uh, idea of a nation state. Um, And it's new, right? It's new. It is new, yes. It is new. It it, it did exist as, as as a subcurrent of the Indian national movement because there was always this Countercurrent, which we see in the Muslim League as well as the Hindu Mahasabha and the RSS, where the Muslim League thought that there are two nations. One is a Hindu nation, the other is a Muslim nation, and both can't live together. Therefore, the Muslims need a separate country. That was the Muslim League's argument, Jinnah's argument. The, the Hindu Mahasabha and the RSS, they mirrored Jinnah in that sense. They, they believed that Indians, Hindus and Muslims can't live together and and everyone is a Hindu in this idea. So Hindu supremacy can be established only when Muslims and Christians are disenfranchised. You don't give them voting rights. You treat them as second-rate uh, citizens, second-category citizens. You, they don't get to vote. 
and a whole lot of other rights are also excluded uh, from them. So, so you deny them all that, only then you can achieve a Hindu state. So whatever today they are claiming that you know, everyone is a Hindu, which is a very disturbing argument that the RSS comes up with, uh, that everyone is a Hindu, everyone who lives in India is a Hindu. So you are actually uh, not respecting the diversity that comes along with the Indian identity. My individual faith can be anything. I am an Indian, that is one identity. I could be a Hindu, that's my second identity. I could be something else, that's my third identity. And these identities are, are not, they don't clash with each other. But to say that there can only be a Hindu, if I'm a Christian, I don't want to be identified as a Hindu. I'm very happy to be identified as an Indian. As, as a Muslim, I don't want to be identified as a Hindu. I'm very happy to be identified as a Muslim. Now, but then my being a Muslim does not... Uh, have anything to do with my being an Indian. I, I'm an Indian, I'm an Indian Muslim, I'm an Indian Christian. I don't have any problem with that. This is something where when you definitely disrespect diversity, then you create grounds for trouble, which is what is happening in India. And Hindu nationalism is a very modern idea that way. And it, it, <laughs> I don't think it would be wrong to say that it's a very European idea at the same time. It's not a very inherently Indian idea because this whole concept of nationalism is firstly is a European concept. And this uh, concept of having uh, nation states identified either by a language or a religion is again a very European idea. The 19th century European states were coming into, into shape in the 18th and 19th centuries. And then uh, we started following that model. And... Uh, for a country like India, it's it's difficult. It's it's literally impossible to have that sort of an idea simply because there's there's so much diversity. Everyone speaks a different language in this country. So you have Hindi speakers in North India. You have Bengali speakers in the eastern parts. You have, then you have Assamese speakers, which is my language. Then down south, you have so many other languages: Tamil, Telugu, uh, Malayalam, and all of that. So how do you convince everyone that they are part of a national whole? So Indian identity is sufficient. The moment you start getting into religion, then you are creating grounds for conflict. And that's not how our ancestors identified themselves. So you were a Deccani in the Mughal period, you were a Deccani or, or you were from Hindustan. Hindustan meaning North India in those days. You are either from Hindustan or from Dakkan, right? Or you're from Bengal, if you're a Bengali. So anyone from Bengal included Bihar and Orissa as well. So everyone was coming from Bengal. So um, that also did not have religion as a key identifier. So religion was just a matter of faith. No, nobody really identified. Yes, the emperors themselves were Muslims. Because, uh, and their idiom of kingship was also Islamic. But most of them understood that in order to govern so many different people in a subcontinent uh, where people follow different religions and languages, it was not possible to impose one lifestyle or one faith, which is why, which is what explains the fact that this is still a very Hindu-majority country, uh, Indian nation-state, that is. Um, this diversity is something which is akin to uh, an aggressive nationalism religious-centric nationalism, which we are seeing increasingly in India. Now, uh, in many ways, the way it functions it is very medieval. Medieval in the sense that um, you want, you justify all kinds of violence on people who you think are in conflict with the state or people who don't conform to this majoritarian aggression that we are seeing increasingly in this country. So people who resist that or protest against it or become victims of it, 
you are you justify it as uh, so you are increasingly identify the country with a religion which is not what india always was right and in fact in mughal times surprisingly i mean there's this book which came out uh, uh, in early 2000s uh, it was by an american called james lane uh, shivaji a hindu king in muslim india okay and that uh, was very controversial because it said certain things about shivaji's parentage which uh, the hindu nationalists back in maharashtra did not like uh but i think people ignored this one very important point that the book title made that essentially at, in those times when the moguls were ruling and before them the sultans uh india or hindustan at least or the empires they were seen as darul islam which is the land of islam so a muslim state where the majority was non muslim so this idea was pretty much there uh so that way it's a very medieval idea <laughs> <laughs> isn't it so which you are now to, trying to use uh, it as a hindu state uh and then you then you complain that see what the muslim sultans did to us you just don't realize that you are actually trying to do the same thing but uh in in modern times so uh the idea of india is very different of course when you talk about india in the pre modern period that's a very different country as they say the past is a different country Uh, the india that we talk about today is the modern nation state of india so a lot of this nationalist rhetoric comes from the understanding of india's modern boundaries which you then retrospectively apply to the pre modern period or the early modern period which creates a lot of conflicts and that is what your book is trying to counter or at least redress am i correct Absolutely that's my it's been my humble effort so I'm trying to understand myself as to how this whole thing is unfolding and I have made this comment in my book that um we are essentially in many ways a medieval people because many of the things like segregation uh uh through through birth you are born into a certain caste in in hinduism right and then this caste doesn't change you're born into it you can never change it so even if you change your faith this caste tag never goes right so that is a very medieval thing i think it's a very medieval sort of an identity which and people take pride in that so now increasingly you're seeing that uh, it's a very um um the the caste assertions of the 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 upper caste groups is becoming more and more dominant and this is happening even in mainstream cinema where you know and and television where until a decade ago or 20 years ago many characters would not have their surnames you know or you would not identify those characters with their surname but now increasingly upper caste surnames are becoming very fashionable so you will have a character who is fighting for somebody's rights you see that movie um, jolly llb2 where akshay kumar plays an advocate a very opportunist advocate and you see the last scene if you have seen the movie the courtroom that drama evolves where this this jihadist terrorist who is dressed up as a brahmin and the lawyer akshay kumar the character he asserts his own caste identity he says i am also a brahmin now you tell me what kind of a brahmin are you so you have that conversation which happens right so he is one is trying to outdo the other in terms of who is the more pure brahmin right so this is happening in mainstream cinema you could not imagine this scene in a in an indian movie hindi film 
10 years back or 20 years back because this was considered to be very upsetting. You are not supposed to assert your identity because the Indian state was trying to achieve uh, a state where caste would not discriminate you. I mean, there has always been caste discrimination in India, but this would not permanently put you uh, in a disadvantageous situation. So that was the effort, it seems. But now you have, uh, again, a very popular series recently has this, again, advocate who is a Madhav Mishra and who is a Brahmin who is wearing his sacred thread. He shows it pretty much. So this flaunting of upper caste identity has also happened because of the regime that believes in, in, in Hindu supremacy. And Hindu supremacy, in this case, is Brahminical supremacy. So uh, I think a lot of this, well, I mean, it's for a social scientist to make that argument, but I think as a, as a, as a layman, as a journalist who is watching, times as they unfold, I think I am finding it interesting and disturbing at the same time, whatever is happening. Well, thank you so much, Mani Mukda Sharma, for coming on and offering such a great perspective and take on current times with all these historical references to Akbar. Uh, you know, I really liked how you were able to juxtapose these two themes of nationalism and religious tolerance with today's context. And um I think the book is an exemplary display of both sincere journalism in challenging power through the means of historical records that are employed to undermine the hegemony we are witnessing today. I enjoyed listening to you and also reading your work, so thank you again. It was a pleasure to have you on and I'm excited to read your future work. And thank you again for your book, Akbar, Understanding the Great Mughal in Today's India. And also thanks again to our generous Patreons that allow me to create these podcasts. So please do let me know which topics you'd like to hear next in the near future. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media pages that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoy this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you.